Well, housing will likely be top of mind for many people as they cast their ballots later today, not just in Vancouver. I would imagine in many parts of Metro Vancouver, Fraser Valley, other parts of the province as well. And we're also going to talk a little bit about an idea that has been floated at a different government level. A Liberal MP is putting out there an idea that perhaps a portion of Burnaby Mountain could be used for high-density residential housing. Well, let's bring in Michael Geller, who's a Vancouver architect and a planner, and get his take on this. Michael, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. You were quoted in a story about this idea. Uh, what is your response? And, and certainly he's thrown it out there, uh, saying that it would need more study. It's not something that could be done tomorrow. But what is your response to this idea that that big tank farm that anybody who's been in Burnaby, the area around Burnaby Mountain has seen, uh, could be high-density housing? Well, my first thought, and I speak from the perspective of someone who was involved for seven years building the new community around Simon Fraser University at the top of Burnaby Mountain, is that this is certainly an idea that would need a lot of study, none of which seemed to have been carried out before the Member of Parliament threw out his his suggestion that the tank farm be relocated and the site used for... uh, a whole new housing community. It sort of goes against everything that I understand the city of Burnaby would want to see. Uh, it also struck me as anytime you see a gas station closed down, there's always always talk of the work that needs to be done to uh, remediate the soil and to bring it up to code to even build on a small site like that. I can't even imagine what would need to be done to what was previously a tank farm. No, and uh, that was certainly something I discussed with the reporter from Burnaby Now who called me. Uh, I just know what it cost us to remediate the Bayshore site in Coal Harbor and the cost that the taxpayers of British Columbia paid to remediate the north shore of False Creek. Uh, And we're talking, in that case, hundreds of millions of dollars. So again, uh, there's no doubt that there would have been spills over the years. There's no doubt there will be some contamination. There may be a lot of contamination. But the sensible thing, from my point of view, would be to have to at least acknowledge that that in itself might prevent the idea from ever being realized. The other consideration, of course, is that when SFU built its new housing community called University City, it was built because the city of Burnaby demanded that the other lands on Burnaby Mountain that the university then owned be returned to the city as a conservation area. And so my other first thought was, if for some reason this tank farm was to be relocated, and I'm sure many of your listeners would love the thought, that land would simply become an extension of the Burnaby Mountain Conservation Area. Right. It wouldn't suddenly uh, become this uh, other university area or this other uh, city area of uh, high density housing. Uh, So do you think maybe he's just throwing these ideas out there to get people talking about it or to see if there are other creative solutions or ideas that maybe haven't been discussed before? Yes, I think that's very much the case. As uh, as you pointed out before, with respect to Gregor Robertson, what was once uh, deemed to be a real significant promise uh, to end homelessness, the, the term aspirational is now being applied. Uh, and maybe this is something that's aspirational. But I think it, the point is, and this applies, Jill, not just to this Burnaby Mountain proposal, but to all of the promises being made by politicians throughout the region, is that you know it's sometimes irresponsible, in my opinion, to be making promises that 
anybody who really understands the situation knows are not likely to be kept. And I suspect at the end of the day, we will not ever see, at least not in my lifetime, uh, those tank farms uh, relocated and replaced by a new housing development. In the same way as we won't see any four-year rent freezes in Vancouver, we won't see the tens of thousands of homes being built by governments that some politicians are planning uh, or promising and so forth. I, I wanted to talk because you wrote about that uh, on your blog as well. And it, it always kind of gets to me, A, when, when people talk about politicians who promise to make Vancouver more affordable, I always wonder what exactly they mean by that. And and uh, unless you mean that you're going to change the whole system and everybody is going to live in government-subsidized housing, what exactly do politicians, what can they do to make it more affordable in a city like Vancouver? Yeah. Well, I had lunch uh, yesterday with Helmut Pasek, the uh, chief economist for BC Central, and he was making the point that realistically, we cannot fix housing in many metro municipalities to the extent that everybody who wants a home can afford it. Um, there are things that governments can do in terms of helping to increase the supply of housing. Uh, they can do things by not charging excessive development fees that oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes are added to the cost of housing. The irony is that at the end of the day, the thing that governments can do best is simply give money to those renters who who need money to, to rent a home. It's easier to help people get into housing that way than, than pretend that we can deliver new homes that will rent for $500 a month or $700 a month because even without the cost of land, just the cost of building, financing, and so forth, the economic rent is going to be greater than what many politicians are, are, are promising to, to, to voters. Uh, interesting, when you mentioned the development fees as well, and we've talked about this a fair amount, especially in Vancouver, uh, I always find that uh, interesting too, because we're actually asking politicians, uh, we're not asking you to do something new, we're asking you to stop doing something that's making the price of housing more expensive. You know, people are going to go to the voting booth today, Jill, and every time I think about elections, I'm reminded of a story I read 10 years ago when I was running uh, for, for city council in Vancouver. And somebody told the story of the grade four classroom that had the class election, and one of the boys got up and offered that if he's elected, he's going to make the, the school better. And Olivia then got up and said if she's elected, she's going to give free ice cream to the whole class. And somebody said, well, who's going to pay for the ice cream? And she said, I don't know. And, and then, But she won by a landslide. <laughs> and I think that's what goes on right now. People seem to want to vote for those people who are promising what they, they want to hear. And uh, the truth is, Vancouver region is always going to be an expensive place to live. Yes, we can do things. We can build more nonprofit housing, but that often depends on funding from the federal and provincial governments. We can increase the supply of housing, but that depends on cooperation between governments and the local communities. But realistically, most of the promises that I've heard over the past uh, three or four months are not going to be achieved. All we should do is hope for some balance in our government, some thoughtful people, and, uh, and people who are really willing to, 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 to be realistic.
And, and that sounds extremely reasonable, but you're right. And I mean, even if we look at it on a provincial level, the promise, a lot of people voted because of the promise to take tolls off the bridges without thinking that money is still going to have to come from somewhere, even if you're not paying it when you cross a bridge. And to rub salt into the wounds, I actually heard Carol James, who always struck me as a very reasonable sort of person, referring to that as an investment in British Columbia. And I thought, what a stupid thing to say that removing tolls from a bridges from bridges is an investment in British Columbia. It's an investment in getting voters to support you, but that's the exact opposite of an investment in British Columbia. But uh, unfortunately, we're we're all the same. We we want to, we want to hear these things and hope. And we're we're all aspirational. But I think going back to your uh, member of Parliament in Burnaby, I just hope that the next time he throws out these ideas, he does go in and speaks to the mayor of Burnaby first, and he does speak to the planners, and he does speak to environmental experts, because sure, he's got his name in the paper, and who knows, just like a candidate in Vancouver who's running for mayor, you know, he proudly told people, you know, he took certain actions because it helped him get his name in the paper, and that helps you get get votes just through name recognition. I think we need our politicians to be a little bit more responsible. I uh, completely agree. Michael, on that note, we will uh, leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you so much. Always good to chat with you. My pleasure. As you hopefully know, it is voting day today in the civic elections. An hour from now, the polls will be open, and we are going to talk about what you need to know to make voting go as smoothly as possible. And Paul Hendren is an election outreach lead with the city of Vancouver and joins us on the line now. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. What do people need to know? I'm getting a few uh, email questions from people, one of them being, do you need to have the registration card that was mailed to you or that you maybe got in the mail? Do you need to have that with you when you go to a voting station? Yeah, that's a great question. So the voter information card uh, went out in the mail uh, towards the end of September. And if you have that card, it's great if you bring it with you. It helps speed up the registration process. They just scan you in and away you go to vote. If you don't have that card with you uh, or you didn't receive it, that's not uh, not a big deal. Everyone can still vote. Um, you just need to register in person when you get to the voting place. And if you're going to register in person, just take a few minutes to look at the ID requirements and think about the ID that you're going to bring with you when you go. Uh, well, how much ID do you need? Uh, ideally, people can bring two pieces of ID with them, and what staff are looking for is something that has your name on it, your address, as well as a signed piece of ID. Um, if people only have one piece of ID, they can do a solemn declaration form when they get to the voting location, and if they use that form, they just need to bring one other piece with them that has their name on it, uh, driver's license, bank card, um, any type of ID like that. There's quite a few choices people can bring. All right. And are they generally, are there times of the day where it's busier or if people want, don't want to wait in line, uh, times that they should avoid? Yeah. Um, so 12 to 3 is historically the busiest period. So um, for people listening right now, if you were to get out there when the polls open at 8 this morning, that would be a really good time to go and uh, not likely to encounter lines. We've also created some things to help people uh, think about where and when they want to go to vote. 
Um, so avoiding 12 to 3, but also there's some uh, locations, like community centers generally tend to be our busiest voting locations. And on our website and on our Twitter, we're going to be updating all day uh, where are the busy locations, as well as some of the less busy locations where people can reroute to, because we have over 100 places that are open today for voting, and people can vote anywhere at any of them. And that's one of the questions that I was getting from people as well, uh, wanting to know if, uh, if it has to be in your neighborhood or if you have to vote at a specific location, but you don't. Yeah, we're on a Vote Anywhere system. The voter information card suggested uh, three locations that are sort of like closest to a person's residence, but you're not restricted to those. You can go anywhere in the city. And do you know, is that, is that specific to Vancouver or is that throughout Metro Vancouver? Uh, I don't know if that's throughout Metro. All right. So we won't, we'll say we know for sure Vancouver, but uh, if you're outside of Vancouver, uh, maybe check in and see what the specific rules are there. Uh, uh, it's a huge ballot this time around uh, in Vancouver. I w- was going online because there are tools you can go online and, and pick map out how you're going to vote before you get there. Uh, mm-hmm. What happens if you vote? So you can vote in Vancouver, you vote for uh, one mayor and up to 10 councillors. What happens if somebody is, is so busy checking the, the people that they're voting for that they vote for too many? Right. So you can't uh, overvote. That creates a spoiled ballot. But what's great about our system now is that we have electronic ballot tabulators. And so when you're done voting, you scan your ballot through and it reads each marking on there. And if you've overvoted in any of the races for mayor and council, park board or school board, it's going to let the people at the location know right away the ballot will come back out. And in that instance, we'll be able to issue that person a new ballot so they can vote again. Oh, well, that, that's great. Because I would, I would imagine, especially with so many people on it, there are, are going to be mistakes made. And it would be a shame if your ballot is spoiled and you don't get a second chance. But that's great that you do. Yeah. Um, are you encouraging people then to make sure or to try and do as much uh, research? Uh, don't, uh, if, you, if you get into the voting booth and that's the first time you look at the ballot, it's going to take you probably a while to go through everything. Are people being encouraged to uh, make sure and uh, kind of do their homework before they get there? Yeah, uh, we would we would love it if people did took a little bit of time before going to vote to do do some planning. We have a few things to help people with that uh, online. We have our Plan Your Vote tool, and that walks people through um, selecting a voting date, time, and place. As well, they can look at all the candidates and mark the people that they're interested in voting for. And at the end, um, you can save or email a copy of that to yourself, so you can um, bring it and and look at it on your phone when you're in the voting booth, and it'll give you a roadmap to where your candidates are on the randomized ballot. Um, We also have voter guides that have a ballot worksheet in them, and those are available at community centers and libraries, um, as well as voting locations, so people can swing by, pick one up, um, mark the ballot worksheet, and then have that open um, as they're voting as as a guide to where everyone is on that ballot. It heard someone say that you're not allowed to have your phone out while you're voting. Is that true? Uh. People can have their phone out if they're um, using it to help mark their ballot, but there's still restrictions around it, so you can't be on your phone uh, when you're at the voting booth. Um, People are also not allowed to take pictures of their ballot and share those on um, social media or anything like that. Um, But we do have selfie stations on the way out for people that want to let everyone know that they're voting, and we have got some fun props, so uh, save the selfies for the way out. All right. Are there stickers? Are there I Voted stickers? 
Yep, yep, we've got stickers as well. All right, that was my big letdown the last time I voted. must have been in the provincial election. They ran out of stickers, and people were quite upset because you want to wear that sticker as a badge of of honour and to encourage other people to get out there. Yep, people should be proud that that they're going out and getting involved and taking the time to vote. Um, Are there ever issues, and uh, I just thought of this too, in that there was somebody in front of me at the provincial uh, voting station who was actually asking the staff questions about the candidates and asking about incumbents and such and the staff were saying um, that we can't help you with that. That's not our job. We're just here to facilitate the vote. Um, Are there things, uh, the kind of the no-nos as far as what you can ask or what what the staff are there to help you with? Yep, so um, staff are there to help with the voting process, but we do have a a nonpartisan role that we're filling. So in terms of, uh, you know, helping people figure out who they want to vote for, that's not something we can do. All right. So are any of the vote, uh, you might not know this, but uh, Vancouver is a city of dogs. Do you know if any of the voting stations are dog friendly? Uh, unfortunately, unless it is um, like an assistance dog, uh, people are not allowed to bring pets into the voting location. All right. So that is good to know. Don't don't think you're going to take the dog for a walk and just pop in and vote then because uh, there's not that, that, that's that's not the thing to do. Yes. <laughs> Um, you mentioned too, so 12 to 3, the busiest time. Uh, people can go online, uh, they can follow on Twitter as well. You'll be updating that. Uh, anything else? What else do people know, need to know if they are heading out uh, and going to be voting uh, specifically in Vancouver today? Uh, I think those are the big things. If you have your voter card, bring it with you. If not, don't worry. You can register in person, um, but do a little thinking about the IDs you're going to bring. Use Plan Your Vote or the ballot worksheet in the voter guide and, uh, you know, have a plan of who you want to vote for ahead of time when you get to the voting location. And if you show up to a place and uh, it's got a big line, um, I would look at the map because there's probably uh, a couple other options close by that you can go to that uh, might not be as busy. Uh, Are there concerns that maybe there will be lineups today, which I mean, on the one hand is a good thing. It means people are out and they're voting and they're engaged and taking part. But Mm -hmm. uh, the other with is what, 158 candidates for 27 positions. And we're just talking Vancouver. Uh, Are there concerns that will take people longer to go through the ballot and there could be longer lineups? Yeah, definitely. So it, it's, uh, it's a long ballot. It's um, 22 inches, which is, is five inches bigger than last election in 2014. Um, and uh, the ballot tabulator takes time to scan the whole ballot. So it takes a little bit longer to go through the, through the tabulator. Um, but we do, we've added some super centers that have two tabulators. Um, so we're hoping to, to keep things moving as best we can. And also um, with uh, over 100 locations and people being able to go to any of them, uh, we're hoping, you know, that with all the staff, the tabulators and people being able to reroute to other locations if needed, that will keep things moving. All right. There are a couple questions on the Vancouver ballot as well, aren't there, about capital spending? Yep, that's great, um, because people do need to flip the ballot to get to those. Um, so when you're done with the front part of the ballot where you're, where you're marking people for mayor and council, park board and school board, uh, do flip it over and vote on the capital plan questions. And if somebody doesn't want to vote on that, does it spoil the ballot if you abstain from voting on that part? No, uh, that brings up a really good point. Um, you don't have to use all your votes for your ballot to count. Um, so, you know, if there's five people um, running that you really want to vote for, like still come out, show your support for those five people and vote. You don't have to use all your votes if you don't want to. All right. You could even if you only want to vote for mayor, you could just come out and do one vote. A hundred percent. All right. So it only spoils it if you go over. Under is fine. 
That's correct. Yes. Uh, what is the, uh, the is it at uh, City of Vancouver? If people are following uh, on Twitter. Yes, at City of Vancouver. And Vancouver.ca is it uh, where the website pretty easy to find for people as well. Yeah, if you go to the homepage, you'll find uh, links to it. And also, if you want to go direct, we're at vancouver.ca slash vote. All right. Excellent advice, Paul. Thank you so much. And uh, hopefully there will be a good turnout later today and everything goes smoothly. Perfect. Thanks for having me on. Well, as you likely have heard in the news, a deal has been reached between the NDP and the BC Green Party. And this is regarding the province's new so-called speculation tax. And the agreement means that the NDP has now gotten the support from the Green Party. Andrew Weaver, the leader of the Greens, had previously opposed the tax. He was also demanding that municipalities be able to opt out if they wanted to. Well, that is not the case and there is now an agreement. Not everybody is pleased with that, certainly if you look at some of the comments and the reaction to that. We're going to check in now with Niels Jensen, a candidate for mayor of Oak Bay. He is joining us on the line. Niels, good morning to you. Good morning. What, are you, what is your reaction to the deal now that has been reached and the fact that the Greens are in fact supporting this tax? Well, it, it does have uh, some very positive aspects to it and very beneficial aspects to it. Uh, Oak Bay Council um, passed a motion uh, and put put it forward to what's called the UBCM, Union of British Columbia Municipalities, which is an association of all municipalities in, in British Columbia. And the motion had called on the government to do two things. Uh, firstly, to allow municipalities to decide whether or not there should be a vacancy tax. And that's, that's really what it is, by the way. It's not a speculation tax, a vacancy tax. And secondly, that any money realized from such a tax be returned to the uh, municipalities uh, and for use in uh, affordable housing. So uh, the, uh, the government's uh, amendments recently dealt clearly with the second one, and they accepted that any money uh, that are raised by a vacancy tax will be returned to the municipalities. So that's very positive step forward. And I certainly commend uh, the the Greens and the NDP for coming to that agreement. The first part of the motion, though, is about uh, giving power to the local municipalities. Uh, They they kind of met halfway (laughs) in a sense that uh, they're not allowing opting out, uh, at least in the first year. And following that, they will meet every year to, uh, to see the impact. And I take them at their word that they will uh, they will consider adjusting uh, the uh, who's in and who's out based on the uh, the impact of the tax. So so they met us uh, certainly all the way on the one and halfway on the other aspect. So I think that's a, that's a positive gain. I know there's some mayors that uh, want to opt out right away. Uh, they're disappointed. Certainly, uh, mayors in the Kelowna and the Langford area, but. Uh, uh, I personally think uh, uh, that uh, this is a, this is a positive step forward. It's not everything we wanted, but you know, uh, you can't always get what you want. Well, I, suppose I, I think that it, I think a, a rock fan said that one time. <laughs> sometimes you get what you need. So this is uh, maybe three quarters of the way there. So I'm, I, I think it's a it's a good thing. Are there a lot of homes in Oak Bay that are sitting empty all year round? Well, you know, that's, that's another interesting part. We don't have any real numbers, and I don't think the provincial government has any real numbers. But what, uh, what I've noticed, I'm on the Hustings, of course, trying to uh, become mayor again here in Oak Bay, and uh, I have a lot of, 
I've run into a lot of situations where neighbors said, you know, those neighbor, those houses across the street, they've been empty for a long time. So uh, that's anecdotal information, but it uh, I, I was surprised by the number of houses that actually sit empty because we don't have any way of finding out uh, whether or not they're empty. People don't have to report that they're away or anything like that. So, uh, and, and I'm sure some of those empty houses, and only a few of them are, are for speculation. We have, we have a number of uh, situations where people will buy a house uh, expecting to retire in a year or so. They might live in Calgary or Toronto, so they buy a house and then they let it sit empty before they make decisions on renovations or uh, rebuilding. So, so those, those are a little bit different than, uh, than, than people who actually buy houses waiting for them to go up. But what I find actually locally, the market has changed locally. It's, it, it appears to be softening a little bit. So the, the days of people buying houses uh, for $1.2 million, tearing them down and rebuilding, I think they're all at an end now, given what the market's like. So uh, I think we'll see less and less uh, empty houses just because of the market forces here. Uh, but if somebody, and you make a, an interesting point, if somebody has purchased a home and it is to be their retirement home, they have it now, maybe they're going to renovate it. Uh, maybe they stay there on weekends, they stay there a bit in the summer, uh, friends maybe stay there, family comes in and uses it. They're not speculators, they're, they're planners, they're retirement planners. Why should they have to pay an extra tax because of that? And that was an argument we made, uh, in fact. Uh, we had... Uh, I, I welcome wagon people. That means I go to every uh, every new homeowner in Oak Bay and welcome them to Oak Bay. And I, I ran into a couple from Calgary that were exactly that. They had they're both accountants had their own little practice in uh, Calgary. They were uh, closing it down. They were going to move to Oak Bay uh, uh, as soon as that was all done. And they had so they'd had a house for a year, year and a half. And they're the unfortunate ones that are going to be caught in this. Uh, but on the other hand, they they can avoid it by by renting the house out. Uh, and then they won't be subject to that tax. So, uh, but there will be some people I think that were, that are adversely affected, uh, unfairly affected. We had a there was another couple in their seventies that, that uh, were in touch with me uh, leading up to the motion, and and uh, they they owned a condo here for over twenty years, and they come here five months of the year, every year, uh, and uh, they just missed that six month. So they would be subject to the uh, the deadline. And it's unfortunate. They may be forced to send as to sell their home, but you know, I guess on balance, the province has suggested, you know, that's uh, you know the the people who ha- are in those situations. Uh, it's unfortunate, but it's more important to create available housing. So, and and that's that that that's another issue that we raised with the the provinces. Many of our our homes are not the kind of housing uh, that uh, really need to be made available. We have very large homes here and. Uh, and uh, it's not the kind of houses that most people are looking for to rent. Uh, They would be thousands and thousands of dollars a month, and what we're really looking for is more affordable housing. So uh, I'm not sure the the Act completely meets its objectives, but... You know that the the part of the part of the amendments are that we'll meet every year. We'll meet every year with the Minister of Finance, the affected mayors, and we'll be told what the impact is. We'll see the numbers, uh, and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, by seeing some of the numbers, we'll be able to convince the government that some communities should uh, be should be allowed to opt out. So.
And are you concerned the numbers, the amount of money that this tax is projected to bring in really isn't going to materialize? I mean, aren't there ways that people will get around this, whether it's you're doing a renovation that happens to take two years, you come by and hammer a couple nails once a week, it's still a renovation, or a couple, one part of the couple that will suddenly become their primary residence and the other the other part of the couple and you just say, oh, but I, I stay there on weekends. I mean, how do you enforce it and how do we actually make sure it's it's the, the right people are paying this well and that and that's but that's the fact with any uh, uh any tax people avoid it or evade it uh avoiding it is okay if you if you you know you adjust your circumstances to meet the law but uh, evading it is uh, is illegal so you're always going to get that you're always going to get people who who uh who avoid playing by the rules and and there will be some issues in terms of uh, uh, whether or not uh, circumstances can be created to make it look like it's occupied. And I'm sure there's not going to be enough uh, inspectors to, to deal with them all. But I think the, the vast majority of people will uh, will be in compliance, much like the vast majority of people are in compliance with income tax. But in terms of wh- when there's a couple, uh, I uh, that they would have to probably divorce in order to avoid the tax. So. One couple, one one of the members has one here, and the other has one in Calgary, and that, I suppose that would be okay. But is it worth a divorce to save three thousand a year? I don't know. <laughs> I guess that that opens up a whole like other it. conversation. <laughs> uh, Niels, we'll leave it there. Thank you so Thanks. much Chip, for joining us and talking about this today. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. We have been talking about the civic elections because those are now underway. People will be voting in their cities and municipalities today. But next week, voters in this province will be receiving mail-in ballots for the fall referendum on electoral reform. And if you think back, this is the third referendum we've had on electoral reform in B.C. during the past 15 years. The question to B.C. residents, should B.C. switch from the the first-past-the-post system to a system of proportional representation. Well, joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Lydia Miljan, who is an associate professor of political science at the University of Windsor, also the co-author of Electoral Rules and Fiscal Policy Outcomes in BC, also a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Lydia, thanks so much. Great to have you back on the program. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, You've looked at this again and looking at other countries, uh, 26 countries that use a type of proportional representation. Uh, Let's start with the question, because that is one of the issues as well, is it's not just this idea, well, I shouldn't say just, but it's not only focusing on the idea of switching to a new system, but the question and the clarity of the question that is put to people. Oh, you're talking about the referendum question. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's a two-part question. Um, and that's similar to what they did in, in uh, New Zealand when they switched. A little bit different than New Zealand because they had more options and they had options that were actually used in real life. The, uh, my problem with this particular question is two of the three uh, systems um, have never been used. They're notional systems. They're theoretical. So in a sense, the government is stacking the decks in favor of mixed member proportional because that's the only one that people know. And, and that's really not in keeping with good practices of reference 
referendum questions. Uh, we know from case law and from international examples that you need to have a fair question that doesn't bias um, the results one way or the other. And clearly this this question doesn't look like it's doing that. Because in New Zealand, did they did it tw- uh, two steps, didn't they? In that they asked the question yeah. first and then it was the decision. And it seems like they got a lot more information than what BC residents have at this point. Well, that's the other thing that was was different. They had this two-part question, which, again, I don't have a problem with the two-part question. But then what they did is they went back, they designed a system based on what people thought was their preferred preferred option. And then they went back to the electorate and they said, okay, here's the new legislation. Here's what your writings are going to look like. Here's what the thresholds are. Here are all the rules of the game uh, moving forward. And so they asked them again, do you want to maintain our current past the post or do you want the new legislation that we have now? created. And in that case, uh, New Zealanders uh, voted in favour of electoral reform, and they seem to be quite happy with it. After a certain amount of time, they actually went back to the electorate and asked them, are you still good with it? And people were, you know, the support went down, but it was still over 50%. That's not what's going to happen here. Um, What the government's saying is, you know, first past the post or another option, if you choose over 50% of these, choose that, then we're going to go to whatever gets the most votes and we don't care how many people vote we don't care uh if it actually gets the most first votes. so we're going to do a ranked ballot and then we're going to just design the system trust us <laughs> you know, they're basically saying trust us we're going to figure this out and you're going to love it and then we're going to get you, we're going to let you we're going to let you choose again after two election cycles which is uh it, it seems to be to me from an as outside perspective to be a bit of a false promise because there's no guarantee that the government that's in two election cycles from now um, is going to fulfill that promise. That This is the promise of the NDP and the Greens. They may or may not be in power um, after two election cycles. No, very true. So uh, it's and, and many have written about this and talked about that it's not just a leap of faith, it's a blind leap of faith. Yeah, you're basically trusting the people who, who have a vested interest in the outcome to design the rules of the game. <laughs> so I, I don't know, the logic for me doesn't work. I, I find that this is very... Um, very undemocratic. And the fact that they, you know, unlike the other uh, referendum that we've had in BC, you know, there's no requirement that there's regional balance. So essentially, the lower mainland can effectively decide the outcome of this election just because they have the most people living there. The population density is such that you can pretty much ignore everybody else out of the lower mainland. And that, I think, is 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 contradictory to the whole um, premise of making every vote count. We want every vote to count except in the referendum. Interesting logic. Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, it seems to be a bit, uh, bit uh, going against itself. Um, you've you've also studied in looking at other countries that use a form of proportional representation. Uh, the cost of government spending. Uh, talk a little bit, if you can, about the findings there. Yeah, so, you know, one of the interesting arguments that proponents of proportional representation put forward is they say, you know, we, 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 it, it's great. They think it's great that we're going to have more coalition governments because they argue that that makes people cooperate more and have better policy. So we thought, okay, let's take a look at that. Let's see to what extent there are more coalitions in proportional representation. And we know um, from international research that about 87% of the time um, they have a coalition government in, in a PR regime compared to about 20 23% first past the post. So it's not that we don't have them. We, obviously, we have it. a minority government in BC right now. But then the second question is, what is there, a, is there a consequence when it comes to fiscal outcome? And certainly there is. Um, they're about 30%, they have about 30% higher 
um, spending uh, as, a, as a percentage of GDP. In other words, coalition governments are more expensive than majority governments. And if you think about it, it makes sense because when you have a coalition of, of two or three partners, each of those parties basically has a wish list and they say to the government, whichever got the most power, uh, most votes, we'll, we'll support you as long as we get X, Y, and Z policy passed. So they end up becoming more expensive. And they're also, ironically, less accountable because rather than saying, okay, well, you know, who, who's to blame for this huge, huge spending? Who's to blame for the increased debt and deficits? All the coalition partners can point to the other one. And so you have much less accountability. And even proponents argue that you actually don't have major policy changes from one election to the other. They think that's a great thing. I think that's a terrible thing. One of the, the beauties of our democracy, I think, is that with period periodically get to vote the bums out. Under a PR system, you're only getting marginal changes of, of minor parties. And some of those minor parties could be extreme parties that don't reflect the values of the median voter. And they're the one, they're, those are the policies that get pursued just as, a, uh, as the price of doing business in a coalition. And and I guess it's it's where there, it seems to be a bit of a gray area or one where because the proponents of PR will say you get better representation, uh, whereas opponents of it say it's the exact opposite, which I think is perhaps what's causing some confusion uh, that in in addition to the fact that we have this ballot coming and we're asked to make these decisions without being given a lot of the facts as to what it will actually look like. Yeah, and I, I actually challenge that argument about better representation. And the rhetoric sounds great, you know, make every vote count and and make sure that the popular vote reflects the votes in the in the in the, in the legislature. The problem with that single-minded approach is that you're taking the overall popular support and you're imposing it on every single region in the province. So again, just because big population areas might vote a certain way, which boosts the overall number of, say, uh, the Green Party. Party, um, but they still can't get a seat because they're not regionally distributed. It means that it undermines the votes in rural or, or areas that didn't vote alongside with uh, them. So what you're saying is that we want, you know, that the overall percentage to be exact across the province. But we know in some in some ridings, uh, it, uh, the person who wins doesn't just get 40 percent of the vote. Oftentimes they get more than 50 percent of the vote. They have really strong popular support that gets eroded. That kind of voice, you, having your vo- vote count in your own writing is eroded because you'll have these multi-member districts and so sure you get to vote for the one person that you like in that writing but then the party list will determine who else is going to represent you in these massive writings you know your local guy or woman um, is only going to be able to to help so many people the other ones from different parties it's, it's, un- it's unclear how effective they're going to be or whether or not they're even from the riding that they uh, supposedly represent so it I think that that we really that there's a risk of really deteriorating local representation and true representative democracy. All right, we'll leave it there, Lydia. We're out of time, but uh, as we get uh, closer and the ballots go out, I'm sure we will talk to you again. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. My my pleasure, Jill. Thank you.